0: Welcome to the African Defense Review Podcast. I'm Richard Stewart, and this week we're following up again on the interview that we did with Michael Aronson last week. This week, we're chatting to Clem Ryan, who was a member of UNMUS during the period that the POC sites were being established, and we're going to chat to him a little bit about um, certainly the UN's perspective on it, and yeah, some more about what the kind of POC site report has, has meant for for UN operations in South Sudan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. So maybe to start off uh, from the beginning. So in 2013, there was a conflict broke out between the factions of uh, Machar and Kir in the capital. What, from the UN's point of view at the basis what, what did that situation look like immediately afterwards?
1: Um, it was a, a degree of, um, shall I say, uh, controlled chaos. It was a very uncertain uh, situation. Uh, on the morning of the 14th, when the fighting... Uh, spread throughout Juba quite rapidly. Uh, there, there was absolutely no certainty. I think about who was involved in in the fighting, um, the the scale and the impact. And so the information that the mission started to receive uh, was really in, uh, in dribs and drabs, disparate disparate bits and pieces. A lot of the staff were actually spread out throughout the city. So, for example, myself, um, I was in my my private residence, which was a kilometer from the main base and so we were monitoring things via radio um, but it was a very uncertain situation and, uh, I think the, the very first sort of instant uh, indication that their mission got that this was particularly serious was when people started to actually come across the airport and to the back uh, to the to the, uh, the west gate of, of the Tomping base and also to the UN um, Facility at uh, at UN House, and and some wounded people started coming in, um, and, but it was still it was a very confused situation.
0: At what point did the UN? I don't know if "decide" is the correct word. Uh, to open the gate to, to the the people fleeing the conflict, and was. Was that a decision in the sense of being centrally taken and communicated to the bases, or was the decision to allow the IDPs made in a kind of base by base basis?
1: Well, I was outside the base for the first uh, two and a half days. It was um, it was only on the sixteenth that I got into the base, and by that stage there were a lot of IDPs already inside. I spoke with a number of staff members who were in, involved in this, and it, I mean, if you if you look at the size of the of the base in uh, Tomping, for example, it has a very extensive perimeter which, uh, which ran for kilometres and in some points uh, there was control of, uh, of access and, and I know that there were some unpol officers who were on duty who consciously um, decided to try and control the situation and allow people into the uh, into the base. There were other areas where some of the fences um, were not in very good repair and um, some people came into the base via that way. Uh, so I think there was sort of a, a little bit of a, a mixture. Um, I, I do know that uh, that when it became clear to senior staff members that people were coming into the base that there was a conscious decision to allow those people to remain and then people were begun to be funneled into particular locations within Tomping. I think initially um, it, it would be a little bit of an overstatement to say it was a very conscious decision to o- open a single gate. I think that that um, kind of uh, creates an image which slightly um, overstates what was going on. It was a it was a far more um, orga- organic sort of process. And of course, uh, up country as as um, places like Boor and Malakal uh, and Bentiu um, became involved in the in the fighting, then. There, was, there were variations in some, some areas, So, like from Bentiu, for example, um, where they actually had uh, sort of a, a, a very basic POC area um, prepared. Uh, uh, people were, were consciously channeled into those areas. In Malakal, um, initially people were, were, went, went into certain um, uh, areas in proximity to the base, but as the fighting spread, they then pushed into the main base, and there was a, a, a less of a controlled situation there. So it was a little bit sort of um, variable, depending on, on the location.
0: How prepared were the bases for something like this? So Michael mentioned last week that there had been a, at least precedent on a tiny scale of small numbers of people sheltering in on near UN bases in the past, but that there didn't be no preparational conception that something this large might might ever happen or we need to be catered for.
1: Um, the bases in, um, in Juba had uh, virtually no preparation at all. Um, the bases in Bentu um, and Malakal had uh, areas adjacent to the camp which had been um, uh, allotted for, uh, POC, for POC sites. Basically they were just sort of relatively cleared fields, or they had sort of a limited scrub, and uh, in both those instances I believe they also had very, very small berms, you know, like sort of knee-high areas. But beyond that, there had been very limited uh, planning at all and and the scale of this completely caught the
0: mission off guard what happened next so the the bases were then filled with IDPs. there was short staffing because of the christmas break at at what point did the un uh, how did the process i suppose i should ask work of the un reaching out and involving the humanitarians beginning to decide to move people out of the base so so what happened in the in the, the day subsequent
1: well i mean as i said uh, people were trying to assess what was happening with the situation, and different agencies, uh, different humanitarian agencies, respond, were responding in different ways. Some were actually um, didn't have the security uh, assurance to actually keep staff in countries, so uh, so there was a lot of evacuations. As you know, there were you know um, a lot of member states flew in planes uh, sort of, uh, when the airport opened again. I think it was around the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth. So a lot of international staff actually relocated out of the countries. So. Um, and and some UN uh, unless personnel also choose chose that option as well so there was kind of a um, a bit of a uh, uh, things were in flux for a little while some of the more um, uh, long-established humanitarian agencies like MSF for example who have have deep experience of dealing with crisis situations were a bit more prepared and they actually um, I, uh, I was told they will perhaps the first agency um, and maybe there were some others as well who actually came to on uh, this tomping uh, and said hey you know we, we need to set up operations can you know can we can we uh, can we set up something with you and, and so um, yeah there was there was kind of like a a, 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 um, a bit of a, a, a sorting out I guess it, it took quite a, a, a about 10 days or so, I think, at least for the agencies who are going to stay to sort out where they had staff, where they had resources, to start to position them inside um, some of these uh, sites, and um, for us to begin to think that this might be a slightly more long-term proposition. But there were locations like Bohr, for example, where uh, all agencies... um, Uh, that was stationed there withdrew, and all that was left were some peacekeeping staff, basically troops, uh, all civilian staff uh, were were withdrawn. So, And at that stage, um, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was about 15,000 people uh, who'd come into the Boer POC site, and so that was basically left to the military uh, actors on the ground, the the, uh, South Korean peacekeeping um, contingent there. In particular, to just uh, to, to start helping as, as we could, so it was it was it was a very um, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily a particularly uh, pre-planned response, should we say? It sort of it, it, it evolved, and the humanitarian coordinator at the time, Toby Lanza, spent a lot of energy. He, he it was fortunate that he was actually in country at the time, and uh, he. he um, it spent a lot of time going around to these locations consistently, flying up to Bentu, flying up to Bor, flying up to Malakal, and that was part of my job was to accompany him on, this, uh, on, on these missions and to basically turn up in a location, see what uh, what staff were there, what resources were there, and to try and, and uh, get the, the resources directed there. But it took some time for that to start to,
0: to take place. So from the perspective of an anonymous base commander, what are the kind of considerations or concerns that that kind of an influx of, of IDPs was producing?
1: Uh, well, there are, there are a, a variety of concerns. One is is that uh, congregating people in, in a particular place in a conflict situation um, like this. So, for for example, in war where the populations were deeply antagonistic towards one another, there was a concern that the base itself might actually um, be attacked, and there were actually threats. Um, uh, at, at one point, for the base to be overrun, um, in in Malakal, um, where the IDPs had moved in in mass and had uh, occupied large spaces of the base and had uh, taken up occupancy in all of the uh, washrooms and had basically um, uh, taken over the control of the water supply, no, not in any um, malevolent way, but people were just helping themselves to the resources that were available. And uh, that, that meant that there was no water available for the UN staff on the ground. So it was very quickly creating a, a situation that was um, ma- making it very difficult to sustain the mission's operations from a, both a security perspective, that we wouldn't necessarily be able to maintain civilian staff in location, and also that we just wouldn't be able to have the resources to support them. So uh, basically getting control back over, over space so that we could actually have things like water uh, to support the staff, so that the staff then in turn could do their job to support the IDPs. Those kind of basic uh, things were key in those early days.
0: And then the next phase was this relocation of a lot of the IDPs to areas right adjacent to, to many of the bases. How smoothly did that process go?
1: Yeah, it took a few months for that to happen, but, but there was a recognition, I think, by about, say, February that this was, I mean, it, it, the recognition happened earlier, but um, th- there was a long-term uh, issue. And, and as everyone knows, um, who's been in South Sudan, the rainy season is is, is, uh, is uh, can be... Um, Incredibly wet and muddy, and also brings with it the risk of all sorts of diseases. So there was um, there was a recognition that we needed to get people out of these circumstances. In Tomping, for example, we had. Um, uh, upwards of 25,000 people in a space which was estimated to be about 100,000 uh, square meters. So, you know, roughly four square meters per person. That, that's just not sustainable uh, in in the conditions that, that would prevail in South Sudan in the uh, rainy season. So we needed to work quite quickly um, to, to relocate. And I think it was quite impressive what was achieved in many locations. If you look at the POC3 site in Juba, which was developed in response to that, to basically get people out of the mud and tomping to avoid things like cholera and to move them into spaces where they had, um, instead of four square metres, something closer to 20. Uh, square meters per person um, that that happened very quickly and, and it showed quite an impressive level of coordination um, between the mission uh, humanitarian agencies member states uh, that were involved in the funding for this um, and um, yeah I mean I, I think initially the the, the, the key problem was um, was perceived to be Juba, so there was a lot of a lot of emphasis and focus on that. It was only later that we, um, when the fighting really escalated and the IDP numbers uh, um, went up dramatically in places like Bentiu and Malakal, uh, um, that we that that the plans to expand the bases um, in those areas caught up. In terms of the actual relocation itself, well. Um, the, the Juba one you know is a very it was a very stressful um, event because you were actually relocating people from um, not just sort of a few hundred meters but you were taking them a, a few kilometers away to, to another location and so there was quite a lot of logistical challenges but there are also um, uh, uh, challenges within the internal population there were a lot of people who were um, confused about why we were moving people so we spent a lot of time and effort holding community meetings about um, our concerns about cholera and overcrowding and the unsustainability of people in the Tomping location. Um, but there was also a degree of misinformation being put around amongst, um, by certain people inside the POC side. Uh, who felt that they they just preferred being in Tomping, and so this can this led to a degree of um, of uh, confrontation at at some points. A lot of people were very happy to leave, but there was certainly a, a rump who, who weren't and and felt that it was in their interests to stay. So um, I think it it took us from the time that we started something like about five to six months to complete the relocation so I mean it's quite a long process but in the end we relocated nearly 20,000 people and then uh, this process has been also carried out in other locations subsequently Um, slightly less dramatically I think in some ways because if you look at the situation say in Bentiu where people were actually living um, basically underwater then uh, they they were much clearer about the desirability of changing locations so it was a bit of an easier process in, in some ways to relocate people
0: this is probably a good point to then shift slightly to discussing a little bit about the unmiss relationship with a lot of the humanitarians in the camp so the report talks a lot about how while INMUS was trying to produce security and, and basic logistics arrangements, it fell to the humanitarians to do a lot of the uh, living improvement work, but that there was initially that there weren't a huge amount of tensions between the two groups just because of pressure, but that that later started to, to fray a little. It, it, would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, there was a huge learning um uh, process on both sides, probably more so from the mission side. Um, you know, staff members in, in the peacekeeping mission generally, with a few exceptions, had fairly limited experience of uh, humanitarian operation. Um, myself included, and so there was a lot of learning uh, that, that had to take place about um, not just processes, but also you know st- standards and and uh, procedures. Some of the um, the the principles that the humanitarians um, view about the uh, voluntary nature of, of certain interactions and things like that are, are a little bit different to how sort of, peacekeeping operations would view your interactions with people. Um, but uh, similarly, I think that the humanitarians uh, had to learn a lot about what a peacekeeping mission is and how it operates, and that's that was quite a complex uh, thing in, in and of itself. I, th- I think um, yes, there was there was sort of an, an initial. Um, Sort of golden period where, where there was just a lot of energy and effort and and can do attitude, which did cha- it did change over time um, necessarily to a degree as is, there's is, is only so long that you can sustain that kind of uh, energy um, basically on adrenaline, and then you need to bring in systems, and and then when you introduce systems, that always requires that um, dis- decisions are made, and there are key um, there there are potential there's potential for disagreements about who. Gets to decide, I guess, and that's one of the things that I think is contained in the report that, that shows that there were disagreements about um, uh, who, who actually um, should determine, say, the the layout of the uh, of the uh, POC sites and things like that. UNMIS had a view that it was it was inside the UNMIS base, and therefore uh, Un- UNMAS uh, ultimately had the, uh, the the right to determine any uh, any
0: key strategic decisions. For the humanitarians, uh, this was um, anathema. They
1: they feel that their operations that, that you know they were the experts in these areas, and that that they should they should determine um, how camps were laid out. And uh, you know my my experience of this, I, I guess um, uh, I think that. Yeah, that the humanitarians have the experience, and that we should have li- listened, or you know, a lot more than perhaps we did at some, at some points or other. But with that said, I think if you look at somewhere like um, Bentiu, um, which is an incredibly impressive uh, um, response, with a you know with with a very very large population um, at times in excess of a hundred thousand uh, people living in that location, I, I think uh, that and still within. The, uh, with the within the expanded perimeter of the uh, of the base that this has actually been achieved, but it it certainly it's fair to say that this wasn't done without some tensions.
0: And was there a precedent for this kind of interaction before in South Sudan or elsewhere? Um,
1: I'm not. I mean, I, I, I'm loath to sort of say no. I, I, I'm not aware of any other precedents. I would You know, I, I think there were probably some uh, peacekeeping and humanitarian responses in the '90s where there was some. Um, Examples were some parallels, perhaps. But I think on the scale and and over time, I think, and certainly from the peacekeeping side of things, no one ever made me aware of any other examples of of quite this sustained level of really complex interaction.
0: And the AOM report talks a a bit about the usefulness of Toby Lanza's position, that this was a unique and and in many ways valuable way of straddling that divide. Was was that your experience?
1: Yeah, that was my experience. I know that... um, yeah, well, I'll start by saying it from the mission side of things. I, I think having a humanitarian coordinator who was also a, ma- a member of the senior uh, management team within the mission who also had direct control of mission uh, staff and and some mission assets uh, made it easier and, and um, more uh, – he, he could mobilise the mission in a way that um, was very valuable in those early days uh, of the crisis in particular, and we saw that a lot, so um, his the fact that he could turn up in you um, or um, Bor Bo or or Malakal, and that he could uh, basically assume command as, this, as as a senior officer of the of the UNS mission, I saw that being valuable time and time again. Now, I, but I I am very much aware that for humanitarian actors, um, the uh, the idea of having a triple-hatted uh, DSRSG, um, i.e., someone who sits within the mission but is also the humanitarian coordinator, creates concerns for them about um, his ability to maintain impartiality and, and, and that. I, you know, I think those sorts of debates can go on ad nauseum. I, I don't think there's a system that could be built that perfectly insulates or isolates people from the, the certain tensions and pressures of the, these kind of situations. Um, so it's very much about the individuals. I, you know, I can imagine a situation where you have an independent HC who uh, operates very effectively and, and manages to coordinate with the mission in other ways. But in this instance, I, I think uh, it was very valuable to have that uh, Toby in that role.
0: And did the relationship between the humanitarians and UNMIS settle into kind of a groove as the months and indeed years dragged on? Did they mostly reach accommodations on various aspects of, of how to coordinate the camps?
1: Well, yeah, I I don't think it's necessarily been in a groove because um, it's not it's not stable enough. I mean, there are areas where, um, like, been to where uh, with the infrastructure in place, um, I, I think there are, there are certainly patterns. But but a lot of the interactions are about individuals and locations. So you can have incredibly. Um, productive relationships based on the fact that individuals are able to uh, coordinate effectively Um, and those individuals come and go I mean that's the problem with these kind of conflicts is the actual maintenance not only of of the um, of the operations but of the kind of the institutional knowledge that individuals have with them and they build up quite quickly and then when they when they leave things can change quite rapidly so I think that's more of what we've seen throughout this is that there are certain areas and certain times and places where things have worked really well because four or five key individuals from the mission and from the relevant humanitarian partners have been able to sit down in a room, sort things out quite quickly and then and get things done and then there have been instances where that hasn't really been the case and so it's a bit variable um, and it's an ongoing process I guess I mean this is the important thing about this report because uh, I think the last uh, two and a half years, uh, um, it, you know, we should have been learning as we're going, but it, there's a lot of reflection that's required about where we are now and what two and a half years of these kind of operations actually lead to. So I think it's very, um, it's very important and valuable that, uh, that, that, that people think about, well, if this is going to be the working structures that we have in this kind of uh, environment, going forward, then perhaps we need to be a little bit clearer about how we work these sorts of things out. And that process hasn't entirely uh, – it, it's taken place to some degree, but it hasn't really um, uh, conclusively taken place.
0: The report did also flag that, you're right, that, that issue of uh, in- institutional memory. was. It, do you feel that was the same between, for example, UNMIS and all of the various a- humanitarian agencies, or were there, were there some areas that the rotations of staff or the rest were just longer and so there was – some places were better than others and kind of retaining working relationships
1: i, I think there, there are a couple of um uh, humanitarian agencies that have been very good at retaining staff and have long institutional um uh, knowledge um uh, and those tend to be the bigger ones so you know i'm thinking of uh, iom um wfp and unicef uh whereas the other um INGOs and agencies have very, very high staff uh, turnover, so um, uh, uh, the concerned country director noted in his presentation on this that I think he said they had four or possibly maybe even five country directors in the first uh, 12 months, so, you know, that that shows the kind of difficulty that that getting staff into these kind of environments and retaining them is. The mission, I think, in many ways actually retains staff um, better for longer periods, although that said, there were very few staff who were really directly engaged with the POC site issues. So, um, But then, you know, the, a lot of those have actually left in the last uh, six months, so we're going through a, another process of, of, of change. Um, yeah, so it's... Uh, no institution has managed to really retain the knowledge, I think, uh, particularly well, uh, but so, some of them have done a little bit little
0: better than others. And then moving along, so as the camps remained from week to week, month to month, year to year, at what point did it become clear to the humanitarians and UNMIS that this might not be a temporary arrangement?
1: I think from for the humanitarians, I think it was very early. Um, they they uh, began to mobilise and prepare. I mean, they have deep experience um, of of camp issues and, and displaced populations and, and that, and in a way that UNMIS certainly doesn't. So I think the humanitarians were um, were pushing for more longer term planning from far earlier. I think for a variety of reasons, some of it to do with um, inexperience, but also some of it to do with. The idea that it's, it was um, not politically particularly pal- palatable for, um, for for to, to plan long term uh, for IDPs from the mission's perspective, because that would suggest that the conflict um, was going to go on a lot longer than was desirable. Um, so the mission never, um, to my view, really did settle on on this idea as a very long term proposition. It, it, it uh, you know, it, it views the PSC sites as, as short-term things, and in an ideal situation that's exactly what they should be, but unfortunately, in the circumstances in South Sudan, that's just not the conditions that, that we're facing, so uh, I think it was, it was very clear to many of us in the mission who were working in the first few months that we should be thinking about these things in terms of, you know, two-year planning, and, and talking, you know, February of 2014, which would you know, take us up to not about now. But uh, that, that has not, never really quite settled in.
0: And now, the missions mandate was modified, though, is, is that correct, to, to include some sort of uh, responsibility towards the POC sites?
1: It was modified, I think it was, May, uh, it was either April, May of 2014 that the actual um, substantially revised mandate um, uh, was, was uh, provided by the Security Council. And that emphasized um, very much focus on uh, uh, POC uh, upfront front, protection of civilians up front. Um, but it didn't really emphasize um, POC in terms of the POC sites. Yeah. Uh, it talked about um, facilitation of um, uh, the conditions for the, uh, the provision of humanitarian assistance, which was um, a broader concept about. Um, peacekeepers basically being there to create security so that humanitarian support could be provided. But it didn't, there was no emphasis at all on the POC sites, and and there was no, um, importantly, there was no budgetary um, shift. In fact, I think, um, if I remember correctly, I think the mission may have actually received a slight budget cut in line with all uh, with the, <coughs> the global um cut to all peacekeeping missions that was happening around that time so uh, and there's always been this uh, slight tension between the idea of POC in general um, which uh, again ideally UNMISS should be projecting protection of civilians beyond the range of the POC sites to areas where people are in need but uh, but this hasn't necessarily always been possible and, um, and the POC sites are there is a tension around this that I think is brought out in the report about some seeing the POC sites as a as a potential obstacle to doing POC in other locations in South Sudan. Um, my personal view is that that the POC sites are not actually an obstacle; that that um, that they are probably the most effective way um, that we have of, of that unless had of, of delivering POC in the circumstances that it found itself. It doesn't mean that the POC sites in and of themselves are desirable they're very very conflicted difficult places and, and very difficult to operate in but they still provide a very demonstrable um, way of, of, the, of the mission actually protecting tens of thousands of people.
0: What is your feeling of the the mission's attitude towards peer sites more recently so do you, have they kind of softened into a sort of grudging tolerance or is it something that they would very much like to see closed insofar as that that could be done as fast as possible
1: i think um probably grudging tolerance um is a fairly apt description uh but th- that doesn't preclude the fact that, that the mission would like to see the the, um, the sites closed as quickly as possible but i i think it would be better to speak with mission personnel about their current disposition towards the sites but in my experience i'm not i'm not sure that anything has substantially changed in, in their view towards the sites.
0: And in terms of precedent, so these sites having been established in 2013, is there a feeling amongst, I mean, would you say there's a feeling amongst South Sudanese that if conflict were to break out again, so if the current uh, peace agreement doesn't hold, that because of that precedent, the UN bases would be likely to see that influx again? And would the precedent hold on, on UNMUS's side? So would they be as willing to, to allow an overrun the second time?
1: I think there's definitely an expectation probably amongst um, South Sudanese that the POC sites have, have had a very high profile and, and people are aware um, that that, uh, that they've housed tens of thousands of people, um, likely hundreds of thousands across the course of the, of the, of the conflict. And so, if if there were to be a, a significant uh, outbreak of renewed violence, then yes, I would expect that uh, people would, if they were able to, probably move towards the bases. And we've actually seen this in areas like Wow, and that uh, I think, you know, on smaller scales. But these sorts of things continue. Uh, the mission's position towards it, yeah, that's an interesting question. And I, I th- again, I think, I mean, this is this is what DPKO New York and the mission. Uh, needs to be very clear about, and, and I'm I'm not aware if they've promulgated any official position on this. I think perhaps uh, uh, it would probably be um, a wait and see approach to see what the actual circumstances were. I would hope that if it were um, cl- if it were clear that this was the the best option that the mission would do this again, because I think. Despite you know, if despite the fact that there are lots of complications and difficulties uh, that come with this approach, it still uh, was demonstrably um, the best thing that that, that uh, UNMS has been able to do. I think during this conflict,
0: a lot of the the IOM report focuses on the relationship between UNMIS and the humanitarians. But what, if anything, was the government of South Sudan's attitude towards the camps? Given that they were on one level an illustration that the government wasn't able to provide peace and security.
1: Well, I, I think the government has been very clear. You, you can look a, a lot at their media presentations about these sites uh, uh, of time. Um, they've have said um, a number of a number of key. Well, they've been yeah, they've been clear. Basically, they see the sites as a um, an indication that that the government is not doing its um, its role to protect civilians, which I think is demonstrably uh, true in many locations, Um, and that they do not like being reminded of this. Their rhetoric around the sites has often been extremely um, harsh, suggesting that the people inside the sites are are well. Quoting the information minister, criminals and rebels, and uh, that this you know, this disposition towards the sites continues. It's interesting, though, that uh, in circumstances uh, such as Bore, in the early days, where uh, local government officials were actually inside the sites, they were very happy to take shelter inside the POC sites. So it was only when the composition of the sites changed that, that that the rhetoric changed towards them. So, yeah, I think that they're that they've been difficult things. Um, for the relationship between the mission and the UN in general and the, and the government, the government's general view is that they, they do not approve of these sites
0: and then my, my last question is the report now has been presented, if I remember right in Juba, New York, London, Washington, and I think somewhere in continental Europe as well what is What is the response been in in the different areas to to the findings and and how um, and particularly from the UN side and the mission side?
1: The mission hasn't um, interacted uh, with me directly on this, so um, I, uh, I I can only, I've only picked up um, their position um, by uh, what other people have told me about it. It it seems that they um, are not particularly um, enthusiastic towards the report, Um, and so they. I mean, I understand that they sent a representative in. in, to the presentation in New York, I wasn't present at that, so I can't comment on what what was said there, but in the two presentations that I was present at in Geneva and London um, the mission um, wasn't wasn't present, so they didn't really engage. In terms of the broader uh, engagement with the report. I think the humanitarians um, uh, who have seen it and, and reported on it, many of whom who have experience in South Sudan, I think they see it as a very fair representation of the situation uh, as they have experienced it, and um, uh, and so I think they and they think that it's important. And I think it is an uncommonly frank document and uh, representative of of the situation that we found. Uh, in, in South Sudan, so uh, I think it's been positively received by the humanitarians. The the, um, the independent reader, the, those who um, who haven't necessarily worked directly in South Sudan on this issue, I think have been struck by uh, the, how clear the report is about the situation, and uh, and also have been interested in the the policy implications. Uh, that it raises the questions that you mentioned about, you know, does this mean that, that DPKO now has policy towards POC sites, uh, you know, inside its camps and, and that? And I, and I think those questions um, people are asking and find interesting. So I would hope that that would continue.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you.